0: The lesson of modern education is Woke Kids Step, Wise Kids Step, College Kids Step. I'm, I'm woke. Read more, learn more, change the globe. You must learn. You must this is Woke Wise College Kids. Welcome to Wokewise College Kids. I'm your host, Dr. Erin, founder of Be Preppy College Coaching. February is an awesome month. It's the month for love and Black history. So our February podcasts are dedicated to love and greatness of African Americans in higher education. I have the privilege in this episode to speak to Dr. Walter Kimbrough, whose career I have admired well before the start of mine. He wrote one of my favorite books that enlightened my path to Greek life. Black Greek 101, The Culture, Customs, and Challenges of Black Fraternities and Sororities. He has long been a respected leader in higher education. He even became a college president by the time he was 37. His non-traditional entry into presidency, his ability to relate to students, and his study of popular culture has earned him the name of the hip hop press. He is currently the president of Dillard University, a private historically black university in New Orleans, Louisiana. His research on HBCUs, fraternities, and sororities, and African-American males make him the perfect guest for our spotlight on African-Americans in higher education. I hope that this episode is a treat to you as it was to me. Happy listening. Thank you, President Kimbro, for joining us on Wokewise College Kids. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. How are you doing today?
0: I am doing well. Well, thank you for joining us on this special edition. We are um, focusing on HBCUs and Black Greeks for our February and Black History Month theme, and I thought it was perfect for you to join us. Um, I read Black Greek 101 oh, way back in 2003. For. Okay. <laughs> and I learned a lot about you from that book and then just growing up in higher education and working higher education I've always admired your engagement continued engagement with students throughout your movement in higher education even as a administrator president vice president um, <clears throat> and so you have a lot of information on students in HBCU students in general Greeks everything. So I'm so excited to join you in this discussion on Greeks and HBCUs. It's a perfect combination.
1: Okay, sounds good.
0: So before we get started, we have a couple of fun questions just so our listeners can get to know you. So what college did you attend?
1: So I did undergrad at the University of Georgia in Athens. And then um, after that, I ended up moving to Ohio. And I was at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, which is between Cincinnati and Dayton. It's really in the cornfields between the two small town. But school, I guess, has about 16,000, 17,000 students. Uh, After that, I had a chance to uh, I was offered a job in Iowa. Um, but turned that down because I got offered a job in Atlanta at Emory and then uh, did my PhD at Georgia State. So I was able to go back home to Atlanta. Uh, So those, those are the places that I I went to school.
0: Cool. So before you were President Kimbrough, Vice President Kimbrough, um, what was Walter Kimbrough like as a college student? What would you classify yourself as? Of course you're, you were in Greek life, but outside of being uh, the alpha uh, Walter, who were you as a student?
1: Oh, no, I was a professional out. I tell people, <laughs> that. I, mean, that's, I mean, I pledged uh, the spring quarter of my freshman year. So pretty much all of my undergraduate experience, I was in the fraternity. So, I mean, that's, you know, it, that's unique, particularly at predominantly white institutions. People at least back then, we're more able to be able to join as a freshman. I think a lot of the national policies now really move people toward a sophomore year. And then at HBCUs, is pretty unilaterally. You need to at least uh, have sophomore hours. Um, so, yeah, so it's the same. I was a professional alpha. I, I mean, I was very involved um, on campus through that. And then I had national leadership positions. So I was able to serve on our national board, uh, had positions in the chapter. But I mean, I, you know, uh, I was a biology major, so I spent a lot of time studying. But, I, you know, I was proud that I went to every party. I went on road trips. I did all the fun stuff. So I did everything. So I feel like I had a really uh, fulfilling college career. And it wasn't just about studying. I mean, I did well academically. But if you're going to go to all the parties, that meant sometimes after the parties at two o'clock in the morning, I had to come back and study. That's just the reality. Uh, but I was—I learned discipline enough early on to say, you know, it's, it's okay to have fun. I did not do know
0: you were a biology major. Now I have a little bit more respect for you. I was a biology major, still trying to be a social butterfly, sorority girl, all of the above. So I do know that fight between do I focus on organic chemistry or do I go to uh, two-for-ones at different places? Like it was, seemed like it was a party every day. In Louisiana, it, it that's probably what it was.
1: Right, yeah, I mean it's you know, well, I don't, I mean you can't really fight organic because organic wins. So whatever organic says, do you do? Um, so that was always. I, I mean, I remember organic. That was that was a tough class. And at Georgia, this guy gave three. Ex- he gave two exams and a final the first quarter, and in the second quarter, he gave a, a midterm and a final. So I mean, it was it was absolutely no joke. So uh, even if I went to all the parties, I still had to put in extra oh, time. Yeah in that class. Oh, yeah. So that's just the way. So
0: what was your favorite college memory?
1: Hmm. So one of them, I would say probably um, the time, and this is just in terms of the commitment, we knew that they were having a probate show at FAMU and that was, and they did all the Greece at the same time. And the Alphas had a line of 25, but I think like Deltas and AKs had like 50 apiece. And at Georgia, you never saw lines that big. I mean, you might see 20-something, one of the sororities, but you didn't really see that. So we decided like three in the afternoon, we're going to drive to Tallahassee, which is about five hours away, and go to the probate show. So we went went to the probate show. We hung out at the house. We went to some parties and we're like, all right, let's go back. And we drove back that night. So it's seven o'clock in the morning and we're rolling back in town. So... Uh, that was just a lot of fun to me that's like what college is it's like you make those spur-of-the-moment decisions like it's Friday you know classes were pretty much over let's just go on cut out go down there and come back Saturday and you know come back that night and that's exactly what we did so that was I, I'll finally remember that yeah I tell students all the
0: times that it's not about you never remember that the exams not. you're never gonna remember you never a, never class. a gonna be class. Be You I remember a exam. horrible teacher you're never gonna but you always remember those times outside of class.
1: Right. Now I do remember now I did have a poultry science class that the one that I remember the most. And that's when the professor showed us the three places that you can take blood from a chicken. You can take it from his wing, from his leg and from his heart. And so in class, he stuck a needle oh. in the heart of the chicken and didn't kill it. I'll never forget that. Cause I was like, this is crazy. So I was like all into that. So I'll, you know, I, we, were, we had a college of agriculture. So I got to do poultry science classes, dairy science classes. So I do have some fun class memories, but those are interactive. It's not like sitting in class taking notes. It's like, you know, we're going to dissect this chicken. You have to break the chicken's neck to kill it. So, I mean, I actually killed a chicken in class and dissected the chicken that I killed. I'll always remember that. But it was, I think the major was sort of structured in a way that it was experiential that caused me to have those memories. Um, But I can see that like right now, like it was yesterday. Oh yeah. I
0: think my major biology classes were better than the intro course. But, but yeah, I think um, if you can have a combination of good academic experience and good social experiences, then you maximize your college life. So many students don't have those combinations and I feel like they missed out. Um, And that's really what this podcast is about to help students maximize their their dollars because they're paying for this experience. You just have to get the most out of it. So we're going to head right. into our main discussion. Um so what what kind of uh, motivated you to pursue Greek life in undergrad? Um was there a mentor in your life? Were you or your legacy? Were you first generation, just kind of looking for family? What was one of your motivations for pursuing Greek life?
1: Well, just in terms of being involved as as a student, I was very involved in high school. Um, I was student body president. I was president of several organizations. I was very involved in church. Uh, and so through a lot of those places, you know, through church and through high school, you saw these people who influence you who are members of these organizations. My parents didn't talk a lot about it, but my dad is an alpha, my mom's a delta. So it wasn't like something that was just always in in my face from that perspective, but you knew about it. And I think I probably saw it more through my high school teachers and then different leaders in the church. Um, so that's where I, I was probably the most exposed to it. Um, when I went to college, though, I was open-minded and my dad was like, look, you're not going to try to play as a fraternity. That's, you know, you, you got to do well academically. He said, but if you choose one, you better pick the right one or you're going to be a work-study student. So, you know, that was sort of like, Wait, now you're not. So I really went with a more open mind because I was like, I'm not going to let him tell me what I'm going to do. Um, so I went to a couple of interest meetings, but there were several members of the Alpha chapter that I had, had known previously that I didn't realize they went to Georgia. So that was influencing me. And then I think, you know, there were some of the key orientation leaders, the first black drum major at the University of Georgia was in the chapter. So when you start adding those things up for me, that was attractive because these were people in leadership positions and as someone who was always in leadership that was naturally attractive to me uh, so i think that's what gravitated me toward the fraternity more so than you know having the the you know experience at home i think that was just the icing on the cake because then your dad comes to initiate you and that's how i, I knew we were going over that day because we didn't have any clue but then i heard his voice and i was telling my line brothers like oh, this is it, you know, because he had to come from Atlanta to Athens. So, you know, I knew it wasn't just some foolishness. You knew it was like this was the day. Um, so that's, that's sort of how it happened. But like I said, it's, you know, I still hear, you know, students today um One of my students talked about, you know, she just became an AKA and she said it was, you know, but her mom's a Delta. And I was like, well, how did that happen? She said, like, one of my favorite, you know, elementary school teachers was an AKA and we saw it, you know, in the classroom and we would sit there and draw the little ivies. And so a lot of times, particularly in our communities, the influence of, of teachers on young people is even more important than just what we learn in the class, but just in terms of role modeling, leadership and involvement. And I think that's probably one of the, and I'm probably going a little bit off track, but in terms of us needing to really have more Black people interested in teaching, because it really has informed a generation or generations of Black people in terms of how we get involved in college and what leadership looks like. So it's more than just the subject matter, but you know they were role models for community and civic engagement too. And I don't hear people talk about teachers in that regard. But, no, I, you know, I totally agree. Totally, I looks. think
0: I'm from a small town in Tantropo Parish and um, Southeastern is is the is the well, the only school, uh, regional university in the area. And just knowing the community and where people come from, a lot of people from my sorority, uh, the chapter were a lot of teachers. So I hear, even when I mentor little girls, they say, Oh, I know Sarah Tam, or I know Sarah Cross or Oh, Sarah Cross is my teacher. So I could see that influence and even with me, I, I did, uh, I am a Delta, but in that same respect, I had a lot of Zetas who were like moms and grandmothers and aunts to me, that still encouraged me in that same way. And I still hold them, you know, just in the same respect as I do my own sorrows. So I do, yeah, I do definitely think that it's that exposure that they can see a professional, um, African-American role model working and loving college life, presenting a fun light and being authentic to who they are, whatever job that they have, Um, which is why I do think that, you know, that that teacher education aspect, it is, um, has a profound effect on how our students grow up to see college life and, and see themselves being a college student. So post-grad, how does Greek life affect your career?
1: So, I mean, for me, um, so it's a little different. I mean, so part of my career was working directly in Greek life. Um, So I was coordinating Greek life at at Emory. Uh, I was director student or I was assistant director at Georgia State. I didn't have as much to do with Greeks there because I was doing orientation and general leadership programs. But then at Old Dominion, I was director of student activities. And at Albany State, I was vice president for student affairs. And so all of those areas had Greek life reporting directly to me. Um, So that was a lot of my engagement was from that perspective. And then along the way, I've been doing the research. And so the other way I started to get involved was um, presenting the research, working with chapters and campuses all across the country. Uh, And then unfortunately, you know, when things started happening happen that were bad, I got involved as an expert witness. So my relationship is really complicated because it's been as a campus advisor. It's been as a consultant. It's been as an expert witness. Um, and within my own fraternity, most of my involvement really is at a regional or national level because just based on my day-to-day work that I have to do, it's very difficult to be you know, active in, you know, my local graduate chapter. I always pay my dues, so that's important to me. So it's like I'm going to be financial every year and then special events I try to go to. Um, but if the, the general president or a regional vice president asks me to do something, you know, I drop everything and I do it. So that's the way that I sort of give back to be able to provide the expertise I'm learning in these other areas and share that with the fraternity. Um, so that's that's the role that I play. Um, and it just depends. I mean, when I was in Arkansas, we had an active big brothers and big sisters um, organization. We don't have it in Southeast Louisiana anymore, but uh, one of our national programs for Alpha Phi Alpha is big brothers, big sisters. So I was a big brother in Arkansas, uh, even as a college president. Uh, and so that was good. So that was a way that I could at least do one of our national programs. If, even if I'm not going to a regular chapter okay. meeting, I was still engaged so in that. So
0: switching gears um, a little bit, you talked about a little bit about your, your undergrad Greek life experience, um, and I'm, I think this question is a little bit self-serving for me cause I, I want to kind of pick your brain In being involved in student life and being involved in administration and understanding the trends in higher ed. It's always a discussion on liabilities of Greeks. And I know the profound effect it had on me in undergrad. And I know the, the numbers as far as retention and graduation and GPA, how, you know, closely tied being involved in Greek life is to college success, but there's a lot of talk that clouds that benefit about Greeks being a liability on campus. What's your opinion? You you've been in both places. You've been, like you said, an expert witness in some things. You're you're in administration, um, higher level now, so you have to think. I know you have to think a little bit differently than you would you know, being in leadership in Alpha and then being that, that role in in Greek life, what's your opinion on this matter and, and your dual perspective of it? And part two, what would you tell, what do you tell students, especially those who may be listening, Greeks who are listening, in order to improve our reputation on various campuses?
1: Well, I mean, it is a liability. Um, It's not like just some regular student organization. It's not like a chess club or a science fiction club. There's a lot of liability. And the liability is based on hundreds of years of bad behavior by members of all of our organizations collectively. Um, You're talking about student organizations that at least every year has someone dying in connection with those groups. And so that's just going to be problematic and it's going to be more problematic. Um, It has been particularly since the 80s when people started more aggressively filing lawsuits and actually winning lawsuits. Um, So, I mean, those are the challenges. I mean, it it doesn't uh, discourage people from joining. People know those risks, even to the point where they're willing to engage in behavior that is not safe because they view the, what I call the social capital that they get from joining is worth that risk. Um, but no, it, I mean, they're risky. And is you know, and I, I think part of the problem that I've seen over the years, and I think people try to make false comparisons when they say, well, you know, the founders were going through this period of time where you had, you know, Delta's founders there mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, AKs yesterday, Zetas today, um, that people will say, Well, they were college students just like us. And I was like, that's not true because black students who were in college, you know, in the, you know, before 1920, you know, before 1925, I mean, you really talk about the talented 10th, every, the masses were not going. I mean, you have many more opportunities for college enrollment and Um, you only had a certain number of institutions where we would even have chapters. They were, it was limited to a certain kind of institution, uh, which is why, you know, most of the groups were founded at a place like Howard because W.E.B. Du Bois said, you know, Howard is one of the elite Negro institutions. Um, we didn't really get a lot of chapters in the South until after the 1940s when those schools became accredited. So you know, I tell people there are chapters and places right now that the boys never would have said we would have mm-hmm. had chapters and people don't like to hear that. But it's true. And the other part is mm-hmm. you got people who are in these organizations now who in the, in the 1920s would not have even been in college, let alone be able to join one of these groups because they weren't viewed as the best of the Negro youth on those campuses. And so it, we become more egalitarian and, and there we've allowed lots of people to join, which I think is okay. But when people are bringing in a different mentality and not really upholding the values of the organization, you've got this culture class. So you got people that come in with a different kind of mindset where for some of them joining a fraternity or sorority is the greatest accomplishment they've had in their life. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem because it wasn't set up to be that way. You should come in already having some kind of accomplishment. And if this is your first major accomplishment, then you now you've been granted a level of power and prestige and visibility that the average student will never, ever have. Depending upon the campus, the Greeks might be more important than the athletes. Okay, unless you're at a division one institution, the Greeks are the superstars. What other student, you know, gets to perform in front of thousands of people and have people calling and sharing their name besides an athlete? It's the Greeks. And people recognize that and they want that, particularly in this climate where, you know, it's social media driven and people are wanting likes and favorites and all of that. So it's a magnet for people, even for people who have low self-esteem. This is a way to put an international brand on someone who may not have accomplished anything. And now you've given that person some power over Mm -hmm. some new people coming in. It's a recipe for disaster. And that's the that's the hard fact that we don't want to deal with, but there are still people who are joining these organizations today that have no business joining. And they are the problem because they're gonna be the ones that when someone you know does intake and have a quote unquote line, these are the people that are gonna lose their mind. So that's that's just a straight real talk about the state of things, and what's going on. That's I mean, and it it's I won't back down on that. It's indisputable based on research and facts. We got folks in these groups that do not belong. And these are the ones that come up with these dumb they ideas that end up getting nothing, people hurt
0: to, lose. People. I have have nothing to lose. They, they don't have identity before they are Aaron, the before. Delta or Walter, the they alpha. They, they don't have Aaron. any kind of, um, they don't have any kind of grounding. And that was, that was one of my first, um, I can't remember if it was just her speaking as my, as a mentor or it was a, one of our first conversations online, but it was the, the conversation of the sisterhood is not a rock. You, you know, you can't put all your pressure on the sisterhood. It is a safety net and you have to be a part of that net for somebody else. You can't, right. this can't be your only focus. We need people outside bringing more things in to make us stronger. So I definitely do believe that. That was my belief when I had an opportunity to um, bring in young ladies into the sorority. And I wanted those ladies who had an identity and lead and led in different places across campus because I knew we needed that in our chapter. But I do agree. It it's, uh, goes back to the whole intake process and how, how you pick and, and, and what standards you have. So where do you see on a national level black Greek organizations going um, just in this political economic climate that we're in? Do you think we're still serving the same purpose as our founders? Do you think it's a different fight, the same fight? What what do you think about how we're operating in general as black Greek organizations?
1: You know, I think that we're trying to figure out sort of what's our role. Um, I, I don't think we are as engaged civically as we have been, even though I, I see some um, some evidence where there are opportunities and people are trying to do some different things. But I think we've got to be a little bit more engaged uh, in civic issues. Uh, you know, as I, I tell people, um, there is a picture in the Kappa Alpha Psi Um history book of President Calvin Coolidge at the White House with several members of um, the fraternity. The only time that we've seen anything like that was Delta Sigma Theta members with Barack Obama, maybe like second to the last year, because one of the people in the picture, past national president, Mm -hmm. Cynthia Butler McIntyre, is a graduate of Dillard University. I think Alexis Herman is in the picture. Um, That's a rare, but it, it was, you know, we went Sixty plus years before we saw another image like that, where a a sitting president would even have audience <laughs> with one of our groups. Uh, now, you know, Kamala Harris potentially could change the game, uh, which I think you know when she announces. I'm not an if person on that one. When she announces, she's going to galvanize Black Greeks and HBCUs like we've never seen before. So we all have a big stake in that, and so you're going to see. Um, a, a block that will be engaged like never before because of her. Um, so I think that 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 will be important. But, you know, we aren't normally getting that kind, you know, swing that kind of political power uh, to address the issues in our community. So it's, it's really to think about, you know, how do we start having more of a focus? And I think that begins on the undergraduate level that, you know, students in the chapters could do much more civically uh, instead of just the, you know, photo community service activity. Uh, there are lots of issues that we should be taking the lead on uh, and we aren't, we're just sort of sitting back. So, uh, but once again, if you get people that, you know, this was their accomplishment to get in, they didn't join to do all this community service. They That's not why they joined. They didn't join for the lifetime commitment stuff. They joined to get what they can get right now. And do now, you
0: think as, a, which as is shine. a graduate person, I feel like I, there's a responsibility on alumni or graduate chapters to still impart some type of training and, uh, a realigning back to the purpose. Um, but sometimes even I feel like I've missed the boat on that part.
1: Yeah. I mean, but you know, it's, I mean, you got to think about when I do events with graduate chapters, you know, There is definitely an age, not gap, but chasm um, that's very evident um, that you don't see the younger members unless they are newly initiated. Um, But people just we don't we don't have a good um, track record of um, sustainability of members where, you know, someone joins and they stay active. The rates are really low. Um, So there are some ways that we can do that. But then you start seeing an even greater gap where you see, you know, brothers who are sisters in their 60s and 70s trying to really engage, you know, 20 year old. Um, You know, you got to have people all along the spectrum to be able to do some of that engagement. Um, And we don't often have that. And some of it is natural. I mean, people go through different life cycles. I know my mom's a Delta. She got really active in Mm -hmm. Delta after we finished high school. I mean, because she, you know, being a mom and doing this. So I understand that. So, you know, particularly for women, I think that if they're the primary caregiver um, and men should do more, of course, but, you know, I just saw it in her. I mean, so I mean, now she's been like chaplain for her chapter and she's doing all the stuff with membership intake. So, I mean, but it, there was a period of time when she couldn't because her job, she's traveling a lot. But now she's retired. You know, her children are grown. She can do Delta stuff. It's, I mean, she got time to do that. And it's a way for her. So that's it provides, I think, a good outlet for, you know, people who are near or over retirement age to really be involved in the community because they really have the time to dig deep and do this work. So I think it's a great outlet for for um, folks in that, in that stage of their life. So I think that's a good thing that we do. But then how do we find ways to engage people who are still mm-hmm. in that? I'm raising the kids. I'm still trying to make this money. How do we do something creatively for them so that they can be engaged where it works for them, uh, knowing that later on, you know, so I think it, it goes in cycles, you know, undergrad, you can live in like, like me, you can live, breathe and eat fraternity sorority 24 seven, you start getting a job, <laughs> your priorities change, then you start a family and they change even more. So then you got to wait till you get these folks. I have a 12 year old and a 10 year old when I can get them out the house and out the state and far, far away then I can do some other stuff. But you know, right now it's like, you know, got to go pick up. Son from piano today, take him to basketball. We got a chapter meeting me tonight. I'm not going to, I got to be, I need to be at basketball with my son. That's, that's the priority. That's, that's when, that's my job. So, uh, those are the kinds of things we have to look at creatively. How do we engage people depending upon where they are in their life cycle? Um, that's what I think creativity. I am, I I am honestly
0: just it. re, um, re-emerging myself in a sorority because we are are chartering a local chapter um in our actually in my hometown will be seated in my hometown in Amy, Louisiana. And um it's been a breath of fresh air, but I don't think I've I would have been able to do it had not of course I've I've been away and I came back recently, but, you know, in my free time of not being uh, a full-time employee right now, I would not have been able to do that. Um, so I am grateful for this opportunity to be involved in a monumental thing like that. But otherwise, I think I would have had to pay my dues and support from afar uh, the effort. But yeah, I do think it's it doesn't. We don't talk about that a lot. I felt a lot of guilt, um, especially from our charter members, um, from my local chapter. Anytime you know they you know have been financial from day one and and held to that and I've always admired them for that but still felt a little tinge of guilt because they were able to sustain it all of these years so so yeah I definitely do think that that is a conversation that could that needs to take place but um but yeah I don't have any ideas other than just to do your best at it but I do see that trend of Um, more seasoned um, SARAs and frat are able to run grad chapters and do the things that that need to be done. So we have a a few moments. Um, I want to switch gears and talk about HBCUs for a little bit. Um, Our educational backgrounds were the same. I, I attended PWI for my undergrad, but I actually did my master's and PhD at Southern University. So I felt that that was the best decision I could have made. I felt so well-rounded and I'm grateful for the opportunity to have studied um, at an HBCU. I, uh, my, uh, I like to say my big girl role started at an HBCU professionally. So um, I do have a, a great love for the types of institutions and the unique educational opportunities that they provide. Um, I also coach students and I always try to make sure that at the very minimum, they consider an HBCU. So as president of Dillard university, why, why should students consider of any race consider HBCU? Why should, should one or two be on their list of institutions to consider starting their edu- college career?
1: Well, yeah, so I always tell students, find a place that's the best fit for you. Um, Cause I think that's just the most important thing. Um, I think the sad thing that's happened for black students uh, and it's just as, a, as a, a group of people is that over the years we started to believe that predominantly white institutions that are generally more well resourced are better for us when there is more and more studies that are coming out that are saying, no, that's not true. Um, and people are getting lost in the system. And so that really concerns me. So one of the studies I cite a lot is that in there are fewer Black men in medical school in 2014 than there were in 1978. Now, why is that a problem? Why why is it a problem? Well, first of all, there are twice as many black men in college today as there were in 1978, but the vast majority of those black men go to predominantly white institutions now. So fewer people are going to HBCUs, and fewer now are in med or in medical school. So if these schools are better, why are the numbers lower? It doesn't make any sense. It's just like you're, you've increased the pool you doubled the pool and you have fewer numerically, not not even fewer proportionally, fewer numerically. That shows you that there are too many people going to schools that are a terrible fit for them. And we have got you know, we bought in this idea that these schools are better. I think of people who went to Georgia mm-hmm. with me that got destroyed. They went. Georgia was too big for them. It wasn't a good. I mean, it was fine for me. I, you know, I'm from Atlanta. So I went to Atlanta public schools. I was around 100 percent black folks all my life. We had one white guy in my high school class. Okay, so it was. So for me, having a different experience was okay because it's like I've had that. What I'm seeing now is a reverse. There are students who are coming from much more integrated communities or where they're the minority and they're looking for a black experience. And so for them, it makes a lot of sense to say, I want to be in an environment where there are people who are around me who are in leadership roles, where, you know, most of my my peer groups will be people who look like me. I think that that's. And so I'm hearing a lot of conscious decisions that people are saying, I'm only applying to HBCUs. And if you come from a different environment, I can understand that. But. Uh, I think people should just look at all their options and it shouldn't be off the table just because it's an HBCU, uh, because I think that's the issue. The other part that I think HBCUs have to continue to do is look for those students who, are, who would consider an HBCU, but no one really asked them. Um, you know, I, I wasn't heavily recruited by any HBCUs, which I always tell people is it's ridiculous. I mean, I, I'm from Atlanta. When people hear I'm from Atlanta, they don't know me. They assume I went to Morehouse because I fit the profile. I like Morehouse in recruitment. And I was number two in my class and student body president. I went to school named for one of their presidents, Benjamin Mays. It's ridiculous. That should never have happened. There was no way that I should have been able to graduate. And Morehouse is like, look, you got to come over here. You need to. There was no just even put that on my radar. But that was during a time in the 80s where people still felt like, well, everybody knows we're great schools. They're just going to come and apply. Meanwhile, I got Ivy League institutions sending me all kinds of stuff. I'm 18 years old. I'm 17, 18 years old. I'm impressionable. So if I got Cornell University contacting me saying, hey, we want you, we're going to admit you, you're a Cornell University National Scholar, which I was, and Morehouse ain't saying nothing to me. You know what I'm saying? Why am I just going to go hunt you out when you're not even in the game? You act like I don't exist. I'm I'm a black man with a really high GPA and high SAT score and leadership position. And you act like I don't exist and that's got a lot of our schools in trouble because we abdicated our responsibility of recruiting the best and the brightest because for you know up until 1954 we had a we had the market corner if you were black prior to brown versus board 90% of the time mm-hmm. you went to an HBCU because there were very few white schools that admitted you Georgia didn't admit black folks until 1961 so you got the market corner when the market changed and it opened up in the 60s, you kept acting like you had the market corner. And HBCUs did that for 20, 30 years too long. So when we realized going into the 90s that, oh, wait a minute, we better start recruiting, the numbers had just started to dive. So right now, you know, we're about 9% of all mm-hmm. undergraduates. So you go from 90 to 9 in 50 years.
0: That is good food for thought. And I so just, that's what uh, happened. Looking through some old stuff, I just uh, uncovered that. um I won't even name the institution, uh, the state institution um, sent a personalized card. They cut out my paper. I was valedictorian of my my class, so they cut out my picture and wished me congratulations. And it was a, like a very thoughtful note. I've forgotten about it all these years. But even thinking back, I don't think I was recruited by an HBCU um, and that wasn't that wasn't one of although right. location played a great part in where I did go to school location and price um I wasn't even it wasn't even an option for me, which is why i I'm encouraging the students that I coach make sure you put that on the table at least consider it go to it, go visit it, talk to some people um at least know your options and make a make a choice make a make an informed decision, not just one where. You don't see all of your options and you just go for that one. So, well, thank you so much for this discussion. Um, you have a, a great book, a great blog, and a great social media presence. Why don't you tell our listeners how to reach and follow you?
1: So, most of my platforms are just at hip hop prayers um, with a Z, um, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Facebook is just my name as well as LinkedIn, Walter M. Kimbrough. Um, and then um my blog on Medium, you can either find it using my name or at hip hop. Red. So, so it's pretty if you're easy, easy to an Undergraduate find me, student um, or senior thinking plans. about
0: going to higher education. He's definitely one person you should follow and read his uh blogs and his book if you are thinking about Greek and if you are Greek, still read the book. It gives you great uh, historical references and understanding, and you have a, a great fondness for all, all of the divine nine Greeks. Um, and one last thing, please tell us any great things about Dillard University to those students who are listening, um, who may not have their made their decision for this year or next.
1: All right. Well, this has been an interesting time. We're in our one hundred fiftieth anniversary this year. So, I mean, Dillard is just a very resilient institution in New Orleans. Always highly ranked, Washington Monthly as well as U.S. News. Um, Signature academic programs in physics. The second leading producer of blacks with physics degrees in the country, as well as um, film. New Orleans is Hollywood South, so our students get really hands-on experiences in the film industry with major movies that are filmed here every year. Um, We launched a Ray Charles program in African American material science. People really interesting in understanding food from a cultural perspective. We do that here. Um, Award winning pre-law program, mock trial team that's nationally ranked. Um, so we got a lot of really creative things that are happening here at Dillard from an academic um, perspective. And then you're in New Orleans. I mean, it's one of the greatest cities in the world. And so you really have a chance to be in a, a serious living, learning lab if you come to New Orleans and be engaged here. Uh, so I definitely I have should a lot be on everybody's list to just are, check it out. To uh, see Dillard
0: alum, doing. and they uh, they have nothing but great things to say. And you're going to know that they're Dillard alum because uh, they rub nothing else. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an interesting conversation, and I hope you have a great day and a great uh, academic year. Bye bye.
1: All right, thank you. I appreciate it. All right, bye bye.
0: This podcast is sponsored by BePreppy.com, a college coaching company. Head over to BePreppy.com for free college success resources and to learn how you can secure a personal college coach. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on all social media channels at BePreppy, LLC.